Yeah, would like to acknowledge the Kulin nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Melbourne. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. It's going to be a beautiful 27 degrees today. Wow. No way! That's what my phone told me. We'll wait to see whether it's true or not. My name's Jackson. I'm in the studio with the old crew back together again. Layla to my left. Hello, hello. And James. Good morning, everybody. And, yeah, well, it's good to have some warm weather. And, you know, starting this important period of the trade period of the AFL. I was actually thinking this morning, what if we had, you know, I'm sure listeners will know that the heated up AFL trade period is coming up. What if we had a political trade period where political parties and, you know, free agents like um, Scott Ludlam could be traded to different different parties? I wonder what that, that may look like. You could have, um, you know, Mel- maybe Malcolm Turnbull would be become the new leader of the Greens as, you know, sort of... <laughs> Well, probably the Labour Party, since they're not that indistinguishable these days. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting that Turnbull was finally happy to make some public comments about the need for action on climate change when he had lost the position of power that he previously held. Funny that. Uh, I thought, I just want to apologise to our listeners. I'm sure most of them were excited to have a whole Monday breakfast without discussing football, but it seems... (laughs) Straight in the deep end as well. It was unexpected. (laughs) Yeah, straight into the trade period, the most (laughs) riveting part of the year uh, for football fans. But I think you're, I think you're, you're onto a good idea there. I'm trying to think of a high value free agent, but having not prepared. Mark Latham. Oh. <laughs> oh god, that would be a very Carlton uh, pickup. I think the Mitch McGovern of. Uh, what thought Malcolm? Point. Malcolm is a you know he'll be top of the landscape as a free agent. I, I think Ludlam would, would be. Well. I Depends don't think on which landscape you're true, talking. True, yes. <laughs> but I mean, you know, Malcolm almost joined the Labor Party in his formative years before he made a decision to join the Liberals. He, and, and really, his policies match up very well with, um, you know, a lot of sort of, you know, fairly conservative um, Greens um, supporters are very big fans of Malcolm Turnbull. He represents exactly what a lot of the, um, you know, more conservative elements of the Greens uh, intertwine their politics with. That's an interesting opinion. I would say that perhaps that was true before he took the highest position in the land. Some of the rhetoric that he spoke may have aligned with some very conservative members of the Greens. Uh, but Jackson, that was just uh, the position I was in at the time. You know, as a new leader of the Greens, I will be able to implement the policies I wanted to, which yeah. is exactly what he would say. Yeah, if he thought he had a realistic chance of forming government which is a whole other question, really, isn't it? What have we got coming up on the show today? 
What have you got coming up today, Layla? I believe you've arranged a guest mm. to speak to us about mm. transformation. Absolutely. So because you had a transformational experience, um, is my understanding. Yeah, I did. It was really unexpected. Um, after the totalitarianism panel, like last mm, week, which was excellent. Well done. Uh, thank you. I was like, "What do I do with my life now?" <laughs> like, you know, just started questioning all these things, and then a burning seed ticket just kind of fell in my lap, and I was like, "Ah, I'm a spontaneous human being. I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to go." I came. I went with. Slight cynicism, because I wasn't really sure what the Bush Diffin community really had to offer on the political and kind of philosophical level. I wasn't sure if it was just kind of self-gratification, but I was proved incredibly wrong. Um, and so the regional organiser, Justin McGee, is going to come in and, t- well, actually, unfortunately, we're going to phone him. But all the same, you know, mm. we're still going to get the same, I think, valuable content. Um, the, yeah, we're going to discuss the ideals of Burning Seed and how this how we can bring their kind of like ethos and philosophy into our daily lives instead of just kind of Mm. using it as a bit of a holiday. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting space because it it does create community to get together and and dance in a beautiful space. But I think often there's workshops that are run as well Mm. about um, community development, self-actualization, and it's a, a much less dry environment than a conference or uh, a political rally. So you get some different insights. But, you know, the, there is questions around the sustainability of that type of um, political organising as well, I think. Mm-hmm. But a good conversation to have nonetheless. Mm-hmm. What about you, James? Uh, later in the show, we're going to be talking to Clinton Fernandez, who's just written a book, Island Off the Coast of Asia. And it's really analysing uh, Australian foreign policy um, right up till colonial days, I guess. But, um, you know, strong focus on Australian militarism, um, as I like to do. And, yeah, it's a very interesting book, actually, and um, a very well-researched book. And, um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to talk to him. And I would recommend um, people should check out the book. And it's got a great cover designed by Les Thomas, who's... Um, Friend of the of three C R. He's a musician, yeah. Let's yep. see, he wrote that yep. great song about ton of Minnowed and Malboy Hina. Yeah, that's getting my memories correct there. Uh, I must say, on that note, it's called an island off the coast of Asia, which uh, is a diminishing way to talk about Australia. But you're saying that it focuses mainly on our military escapades, which have, particularly in our region, been quite um constant and and you know where the the big the big actor in the region. So yeah, and I guess looking as well at um, you know things like the ANZUS Treaty, and you know the, the kind of I guess the role that Australia has been able to play as America's um, you know counterparty in Asia of, of kind of playing a manipulating role on you know in certain areas, and I, and I guess what the ANZUS Treaty has allowed Australia to play that kind of um, attack dog role in, in wars in like Korea and, and Vietnam, for instance. Mm. Yeah, very uh, topical right now at the moment when our commander-in-chief is... I don't want to defame anyone, but he appears to be... He has all the symptoms of a raving lunatic, so I um, uh, that's just my opinion. That's not a fact. But... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good good conversation to have. I'll be talking briefly to Nick Rose from the New Economies Network Conference, which is coming up in a fortnight's time, which is a really interesting getting together of a lot of people who want to talk about what how we can organise society as capitalism continues to reveal itself to be a system that doesn't serve the vast majority of people. Um, 
I think they would describe themselves as post-capitalist rather than uh, socialist or communist. Um, but there is certainly <coughs> elements of uh, of both uh, of you know uh, Marxist ideas in what they're doing as well. And Nick, my understanding of Nick is that he is a food sustainability expert. So talking about the ways that communities can get uh, better access to and a more sustainable relationship with their food supply. Going to play a little bit more of Roro Sawita's interview, who's an Indonesian historian, uh, just getting a bit of insight into the politics of our nearest neighbour. Uh, it's uh, yeah, about 53 years since a huge purge uh, of the Indonesian left by the Sahado government, and Roro has been interviewing uh, people in Bali. And this little cut that we'll play at about 7.25 is... Um, is uh, really about the situation in Indonesia today and how easy it is to organise um, events to commemorate um, this violence or uh, other events that the government doesn't want you to have. Um, we have Over the Wall, as usual, at 10 to 8, and I think that's pretty much our show. So without much further ado, perhaps we should get into alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Well, it is 11 minutes past seven, and you're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and this is Alternative News. And something that uh, I was um, talking to some friends about last night, and it's uh, about the Israeli Defence Force and the amount of vegans um, within the Israeli Defence Force. I saw this report, yeah. Um, and it has gone to... I think nearly 100,000, um, sorry, I'm trying to find the figure. It's just the, the staggering amount of, sorry, 10,000 vegans currently serving in the Israeli Defense Force. Um, and there was a quote which I can't find at the moment, um, but it talked about one, someone from the combat division of the Israeli Defense Force saying that they couldn't serve in the combat division if it wasn't for the humane sort of way in which they, um, the IDF treats animals by giving them vegan shoes and the food that they were able to eat. And this is just a, this is a um, defence force that goes and kills and bombs children, hospitals, families, you know, and yet... Denies people water, food, freedom of movement, yeah. puts up walls, encroaches on, you know, uh, sovereign land of another nation. You mm-hmm. know, this is... This, this is a very bad organisation, and I think it really speaks to the, the, the level of disregard they have for Palestinian life. Yeah, I think compared that to it, animal life, it really shows. Not yeah, and not even really needing to compare to animal life, I guess, in a way, because it shows that they they don't think of Palestinian people at all. They they believe them as to be just something that um, should be out of their way and be removed because they have such a total disregard for their life that, you know, when you can speak with such um, vigour about how much, you know, the things that you want to have, like leather-free combat boots and wool-free berets and, um, you know, all of these kind of things, yet you can go out and carry out the actions that you do. Uh, I think that it's 
it's staggering, um, actually. I think it's a it's a testament to their brainwashing skills, <laughs> like because to be able to create that kind of level of disassociation mm. with another human being um, is like freaking powerful, like. Um, and yeah, quite terrifying that um, we, we see this today. Yeah, I think that's the the terror of military organisations in general is that from the moment you enter, it is a process of dehumanisation, the, de- the dehumanisation of your enemy, mm-hmm. so that you're able to go and do those horrendous things to them without. But of course, it doesn't. The brainwashing may work in in another time, but we know the after, the the, the long term impacts of going out and doing this type of. Uh, work are awful hmm. yeah, so it's a it's a terrible situation and it's embarrassing that they are trying to um present their humanitarian credentials mm. by by being vegan they um besides you know all of the atrocities that they carry out they have one of the biggest propaganda machines i think we've seen um you know since the nazis really and the kind of the way that they able to you know put out information and spin it in this way is really um, you know phenomenal. I think it's a marketer's sort of dream of um, what's that guy's name from uh, the ABC show? Um, Russell Howcroft would be uh, would love the way that they are able to um, sell any kind of message. It really it, it's. It's disturbing um, how well they're able to do that. Uh, talking about messaging and moving to a domestic uh, sphere, I just wanted to talk briefly about Labor's recent announcement to fund childcare uh, federally, which I think is a, a decent announcement. I think it's a really uh, high expense for a lot of uh, us, particularly single parents, working parents, you know, wanting to have their children well-educated. We know it's a really important uh, part of... Uh, a child's development, those early years, and those, uh, you know, uh, people need to be well-funded and, um, you know, all parents need the opportunity for their children to have good education from birth through, through the time that education ends. But, you know, it did highlight a hypocrisy in uh, Labor's platform at the moment that they're happy to support Australian children in this way while they continue to have children locked up uh, in uh concentration camps, uh, offshore torture camps um, for years and years uh, often they've been born in these conditions um, and they and, and the conditions appear to be getting worse. I understand that the Nauru government has just asked Medicine Sans Frontiers to stop treating uh, people uh, on Nauru. Um, uh, I imagine that the Nauru government has my my assumption is that uh, that pressure would come from the Australian government to ask Medicine Sans Frontiers to leave uh, they have form in that area that's my assumption but I just want to draw the listeners attention to an article by Liam McLaughlin who wrote in New Matilda last week uh, what on earth is the point of the Australian Labor Party uh, when they are so similar to uh, the Liberal Party on so many major issues, and he lists a few here. They promise to stop the boats. They advocate boat turnbacks. They refuse to bring refugee prisoners here. They accept donations from the fossil fuel industry. Here in Victoria, they also accept donations from companies like Transurban. They support new coal mines. They have expensive fundraisers with business leaders. They support the Trans-Pacific Partnership, though that is up for debate within the party room at the moment. They oppose reforms to lobbying laws. They back laws to make Australia a police state, which I know you've been looking into, Layla. They support, so support and supported the Northern Territory intervention, which is a terrible, terrible thing. They increase military spending. They portray the Greens as the enemy. 
when many Greens policies, while, you know, some of the Greens' economic policies I think need some work, but a lot of their policies around the environment, around social justice, around Indigenous activism are excellent. Uh, they downplay Israeli atrocities and they prop up neoliberalism. So it is a good question to ask. Uh, I just think at, at this time of change, you know, that we, you know, there's a, there's a sensation with a lot of the elections coming up that there will be um, a vote that is um, a bit of a, a rebel vote or people are dissatisfied in general. It's a good time to talk to your members about the issues that you're passionate about and get them to make some commitments that uh, in, in days of old they may have kept once they uh, got into power. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a good read. It's, it's slightly tongue-in-cheek, the article, you know, um, but it is um, important nonetheless. And the last thing I wanted to just quickly touch on in alternative news for oh, me, someone, like, oh, you'd I'm like to say something? Go yeah, ahead. I think, well, at the moment, yes, it is difficult to see what the point of the Labor Party is, but I think if we look um, back to the, back to England um, mm. and actually see, you know, what, what's happening with the British Labor Party and at the conference last week in Liverpool, um, the Corbyn wing of the party you know, has put forward a platform saying, we're not here to manage capitalism. Oh, how we're here to, to hear. Labor's taking a turn back to the socialist um, left. And, you know, the, the platform that um, Corbyn put up after the, over a year ago, you know, is uh, as revolutionary as, you know, any of the socialist groups would put forward, really. Um, it's it's a, a leader that, you know, has a, the support of the party, has galvanised hundreds of thousands of people to join the Labor Party and has moved, you know, as a person who's been, um, you know, was a leading um, member of the Stop the War Coalition from the day that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan began. And, you know, that's the kind of, you know, inspiring, um, you know, movement and mm. leadership that a party like a Labor yeah. Party could play. You do wonder about the pressure he's going to come under, having now said that we're not here to support capitalism and we're turning towards a socialist approach. Uh, he's already copying incredible criticism about his commentary around the Israeli Defence Force and the behaviour mm -hmm. of Israel. And um, we are seeing how powerful, uh, not just here in Australia but in England as well, the media remains. <clears throat> I don't know if you followed the story about Alan Jones essentially almost bullying Louise, Louise Heron out of a job to put advertising for racing, which is a horrible industry that destroys lots of people's lives, gambling, you know, to put that on the Sydney Opera House, a cultural icon that belongs to the Australian public, as Alan Jones kept saying while he has stakes in the racing industry and uh, anyway it was a horrible interview if you haven't listened to it but the fact that Gladys, uh, Gladys Berejiklian did and essentially capitulate just shows the power that the media have to tar uh, people who step outside of the lines of neoliberalism and the idea that anything is for sale and that we're all here to serve the economy. So, um, But I think the thing that um, you know and it was difficult I wasn't the greatest um, you know, they did face a challenge from particularly Zionist forces um, in Europe, and, you know, it was a bit disappointing how they handled that. But, you know, like this event, five-day event last week, had 13,000 people. That's just in Liverpool. And, you know, there's literally hundreds of thousands of people that are, you know, supporting and have joined the Labour Party as part of, to support Corbyn. And, yeah, I think that that kind of, that people power movement is something that can 
keep the um, media and other things at bay. I agree with you. I just want to say, I guess we had a few weeks ago Denise Ravel, who has spent a lot of time online calling out uh, companies that advertise with fascist newscasts, advertise on racist broadcasts on Sky News in particular, has now been the target of personal attacks from the Liberal Party, Liberal National Party in the Senate, and also constant articles from uh, The Australian over the last fortnight and other news limited outlets or news corp outlets. Um, so, yeah, just another example of the potency of that media. So it's cool we've got alternative voices here. I think we've run out of time for alternative news. I'm uh, just going to play a couple of announcements, and we'll be back really soon. Join 3CR's breakfast teams at our annual film fundraiser on Saturday, October 13th. At Loop Project Space and Bar, 23 Myers Place, Nam. And we'll be screening the film Life is Waiting, looking at referendum and resistance in Western Sahara, followed by a post show live panel discussion featuring Kamal Fadel from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Now, tickets are a good $15 for the waged and $5 unwaged at the door, so come along, have a bit of fun. All proceeds go to Keeping Breakfast Programming on air as 3CR, so you can keep hearing these beautiful voices we have at our radio station. And that, again, will be on Saturday, the 13th of October from 5 p.m. Film starts at 6, um, preferably show by 5.30, and hopefully to see you all lovely people there. Well, I love 3CR, and so I'm going to definitely be there. You are tuned in to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 7.23 a.m. And thanks for listening. Now, uh, in just a moment, I'll be talking with Nick Rose, who's one of the uh, participants and organisers of the upcoming, upcoming New Economy Network Conference, which will be running uh, in Melbourne in about a fortnight's time. It's a multi-day conference that's looking at approaches to developing community and new ways for the economy to serve people rather than profit. Uh, so Nick joins us on the phone now. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Uh, pleasure to be with you. So, Nick, um, can you tell us a bit about the New Economies Network uh, itself and the conference you've got planned? So, the New Economy Network Australia is a group of individuals and organisations that have been in existence now for three years, and it's really people who share a, I guess, a perspective and a vision that we need a an economy. Uh, that really responds to the challenges that we're facing right now and are going to be facing through the rest of this century. Um, and that's essentially to put to, to orient uh, our society, our economy, uh, to foreground uh, ecological integrity, uh, our own health and well-being, care of ourselves uh, and the planet uh, above uh, the short-term pursuit of financial gain. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really as... as as straightforward and as difficult and as complex and as transformational as that. And that's what the economy, the new economy conference is going to be bringing together. You know, so far we've got 170 people registered, um, over three days, you know, exploring that question, that necessity from a, a diverse range of perspectives. 
Yeah, there is a really uh, diverse range of perspective. You've got um, what, just a couple of the discussions that are happening at the conference. Ones that one that I uh, thought I sound really interesting was uh, community justice without lawyers. You've got one called strengthening the commons. You're working with David Holmgren, who's one of the founders of Permaculture, to do a, a piece called uh, reclaiming the urban commons. Or uh, he's doing a piece on retro suburbia. Do you want to touch a little bit on on your work with David Holmgren? Sure. So my particular uh, interest in, in this area, I guess, and, and the work I've been doing now for, for over 10 years is really around the need to transition to healthy, sustainable and uh, fair food systems. So that's the work I was doing with the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance from 2010 to 2015. And, and since then, the work I've been doing is Director of Sustain the Australian Food Network and and uh, David's work uh, of course has been having a similar trajectory for a, a longer period of time since the permaculture movement was established in the, the mid-1970s. Um, his, his latest work, Retro Suburbia, is looking at what he calls the practice of, uh, of uh, garden farming and it's... Uh, uh, the subtitle is A Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future and he's, he's really looking at, at people across this city, across the whole country who are utilising their own private spaces and in some cases public spaces as well to make them productive, uh, to turn them into um, food forests and to be uh, using them as, as the basis for you know sustaining themselves and sharing surplus with other people. So that's uh, yeah, that's that's what David's talking about, and he puts that in a bigger a bigger context of uh, the need to really um, prepare ourselves to what he sees as a you know a, a major change through the impending arrival of significant constraints um, on the you know the capacity of this you know this this you know, frantic economy that we're at the moment to keep expanding and growing um, in the way it has been. Yeah, well, it sounds like it's a great uh, selection of speakers for people who are interested in off-the-grid living, interested in uh, developing uh, communities in various uh, contexts, whether that be urban or rural, interested in improving uh, their intake of food, uh, a whole range of things. So if people are interested, we're going to have a longer chat next week with a couple of the uh, panel presenters. Uh, will be joining us here in the studio on 3CR from 8am tomorrow, uh, next next Monday, I should say, the 15th of October. Um, how can people who want to attend the conference, because I understand you have to get numbers sorted uh, pretty soon, how, how would they go That's about right. that? So you can uh, you can read more about the conference itself and the program at the New Economy website. So that's neweconomy.org.au. And if you go to... Uh, um, uh, events. You'll see their conferences in the 2018 conference, and that will take you to the uh, place to sign up, which is Try Booking, or you could go straight to Try Booking, uh, uh, TryBooking.com.au, and just search for the New Economy Conference, and it will come up as the, the first hit, and that will uh, allow you to register. Um, any questions, you can get in touch with me. Uh, that's Nick N I C K at SustainAustralia.org. Well, thanks very much for having a quick chat with us this morning, Nick, and we look forward to learning a bit more about the conference next week. All the best. Pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Jack. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and the time is 7.29. Back next with Burning Seed. 
So a little over a week ago, I um, participated in uh, um, the path to totalitarianism where I spoke to a couple of like uh, well-informed individuals about the way that our society is kind of gearing up for class warfare um, and we're kind of like quickly spiralling into a bit of a, a police state. Now that... Uh, kind of induced a bit of an existential crisis that was, as it generally would um, in, in any kind of self-aware individual um, and I was kind of left unsure exactly where to tread from that point um, and uh, a miracle happened and uh, somehow I got my hands on a burning seed ticket um, the day of after the, the totalitarianism panel and um, I was able to participate in um, a really transformational, um, you know, exceptional experience. Um, and I've got Justin McGee here who is one of the regional organisers of Burning Seed um, uh, just to kind of talk about the ideals uh, manifested in, in their festival. Welcome, Justin. Hi, Layla. Hey. Good morning, everyone. Hey. Um, so I just, uh, quickly, can you tell us what is Burning Seed and why does it exist? Well, Burning Seed is, um, uh, we call it a regional burn, not a festival, because it's unlike most festivals. It's one of about 37 similar events held around the world. Um, the Big Mama event is Burning Man in the uh, northern Nevada in the desert. There's 80,000 people there. Um, and all of these regional burns grew out of that larger event, uh, which has been going since 1986. And in about, I think it was 2004, out of the event grew this strong community, this community that um, look after themselves. We, we're guided by 10 principles. And uh, any of these events, they have their cultural differences and their local differences, but they all are guided by these ten principles. Um, and and really, they're they're nothing new, really. They're they're just a part of all humans. We've all got this in us. Um, there's radical inclusion. There's gifting, decommodification, uh, self reliance, self expression, communal effort, civic responsibility, leave no trace participation and probably one of the more, you know, the cornerstone of our events or the, these events is immediacy. So living in the um, present moment. Exactly, mm. yeah. Um, and, you know, nothing can substitute for that being there and that being in the present moment. All of these events are driven by the community. So, you know, there's a lot of electronic music at these different regional burns, but you know, if people want to listen to Layla's folk music band, then that's what the community brings. So they're very grassroots and community-driven um, gatherings. And they're really different to other uh, events in that, you know, if you go to, and I love Meredith Music Festival, but if you go there, it's a real rock and roll tribe that get there. If you go to uh, Rainbow, it's a EDM trance type of event. But if you go to a burn, you've got your rock and roll people, you've got your trance heads, you've got mum and dad and the kids, you've got every cross-section of humanity and society in one place collaborating to make beautiful art um, and, and appreciating what each group and individual brings. 
it's really, uh, like you said, it, it can be transformative. Yeah, the 10 principles are something that um, really inspired me because I see it as like the foundational core of 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 the burn and when you're greeted you're brought in and you're told these and you're kind of like these are kind of like the 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 law of the land in ways kind of like um uh like not that it's in force in any way but just a, a philosophy that's kind of niggling in the back of everybody's mind as they're participating yeah. in this and it just kind of I feel like these 10 principles uh, are able to be applied to, you know, everyday life. That would be the ideal, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, my role um, as a regional contact is, is for Burning Man, and, and our role is to, well, it's a couple of things, but it, it's to be a conduit of information between the organisation in San Francisco and uh, my local community. Um, but it's also to spread the values and the ethos of our community and, and talk to people about it. And absolutely, like, the the event, wherever it is, whether it's Blazing Tomorrow in Western Australia or Modifier in Queensland, that's great and we have a great time, all these, you know, different tribes coming together and groups. But the idea is you, you take those, those guiding principles back into your everyday life, back to your, you know, your sporting club, back to your workplace, um, and, and it can be done. Decommodification is a uh, tricky one. Um, <clears throat> um, and the idea behind that is, you know, we've all been to, you know, a, a football match or a, a, a festival and you're lining up to pay too much for a hamburger. If you take away the commerce and, and the advertising, it's, it's almost a pure experience, that interaction with other people. Um, but all of these principles, absolutely, you can... Take them back to your um, your home and 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 live by them. Uh, Justin S. Jackson here. That that is a really interesting one from my perspective. The decommodification. I, I heard Layla say that she happened upon a ticket. I imagine the tickets have a cost. I mean, you've got all these artists coming down. You want to pay them. Perhaps some of them volunteer their time. But I'd assume the people who install the lights and all those types of things. Um, this is my assumption. Uh, would be paid. And you said that it's a space that, you know, is filled with every people from every strata, but if there is cost involved and cost in travel to get there, surely there is some people in society that this, this type of um, activism isn't really within their reach. Well, um, just a couple of points. So, um, and it's the same for every event around the world. Um, everyone is a volunteer. And even the crew... This year was the shortest time they spent on site, and that was 35 days from getting the site, um, building the effigy that gets burnt, building the different art pieces, uh, setting up the gate, all you know, the toilets, all those things. Mm. Everyone's a volunteer. Mm -hmm. um, the lights for the big theme camp. If you, you know, Jackson wants to bring his uh, beer barn, and he's got flashy lights for at night, and he's gifting beer, then. Jackson and his community bring that. Um, you may get a few hundred dollars from the event to bring your theme camp, but you don't get free tickets. Everyone pays. Um, and, yeah, there is money associated. Um, if I, I go to the um, Nevada every second year, and that costs a lot of money. I get there, mm. I get my stuff out of storage, I've got to get my tent, all those things. Mm. So... It's not that the our community is against commodification, not at all. We all, you know, we live in this world where we 
tra- transactions occur with money. Um, but it's more that when we're at the event, you can buy ice. I've got to put that um, in there. Always a good thing. You can thing. buy bags, mm. frozen water, yes. Uh, but um, there's no... When you take away money from the um, equation, it's it just feels purer and no advertising or, you know, soft drink brands trying to sell you the best stuff in your place. Yeah, I suppose that's the one point I was trying to make is, like you say, particularly that idea of travelling around to these different festivals and radical self-expression through these parties. Like, it, it is an expensive hobby. You know, as you've just said, going to Nevada, having all the equipment to get out to the desert, I understand the leave-no-trace thing means you need to have a way of containing all of the waste that you make. I had a friend who just went to to the one in the States as well, and yeah, she said it was a, an enormously expensive exercise. So, so yeah, I guess we're agreeing on that yeah. point. Yeah. I think yeah. we, we've got to make a difference here as well between Burning Man and Burning Seed, because I feel like Burning Man is now gearing itself possibly further towards this position of like um, catering to the more privileged, because tickets are so difficult to get. Um, they're not necessarily that expensive when you buy it, but like you know, you have to be uh, you know lucky enough to be able to get it, and then you can resell it at huge amounts and traveling out there as well because mm. you know yeah nevada black rock um whereas burning seed to me seemed a hell of a lot more accessible and um going off the point of um kind of like a purer purer sense of like humanity that's that's exactly how i was left feeling so yeah everything is gifted so say yeah jackson you did have this idea of you wanted to throw this bar or whatever you give everything out for free and you receive everything for free as well and your entire uh, yeah, like it does just can just perpetuate this state of love, solidarity, mutual aid uh, with with the other. That uh, reminds me of a kind of post scarcity anarchist community. Oh, excuse me. In, in uh, after the apocalypse, um, it'll be a model like that is used, the burning seed that could um, reignite society and, and help people. Um, the the, uh, the, uh, it, the the other thing is about gifting is that like you said, say Jackson's going to bring his, his bar. Everyone's got a gift to bring, um, and there's a role for absolutely everyone to play. From the the kids on site, there, this year there's about 150 um, people under 16. You know, we've got a, a radio station that plays during the event so you two could come along and, and your gift may be presenting on the radio station everyone's got a gift and that's the same <clears throat> back here in society I think people aren't valued enough it doesn't have to be um, you know you're the best sportsman or the you know the best writer you, there's, everyone has a gift that they can give it, it could be a laugh and, a, and telling a joke that could be your gift now, Justin I just want to um kind of bring up a concern that I was left with during the festival and that was just how do we take these values and these ideals and we implement it in our everyday life because it can be seen from outsiders as perhaps a little bit escapist to be running away from the problems of society and building this community and then coming back to everyday life again and not really bringing that transformative potential into our societies um, how would you address that, or how how are you addressing that as a regional organizer? Well, um, and I and I always call people up on this. We, we prefer to call it a burn, and it sounds very cultish, but it's 
to, you know, make make sure people realise that we stand apart from from festivals. Look, I, I think the first thing is you leave an event like that, everyone's on a high, they're on a really great buzz. Um, we're fortunate to live in Melbourne where it's probably the biggest burner culture and community in Australia. Um, every year, hundreds of people make the pilgrimage to Black Rock, but when you're on the paddock um, the other week, Layla, you would have noticed all the big theme camps. Most of those are from uh, Melbourne. But you can start with when you leave that event and every day for the rest of the year is inclusion, radical inclusion, um, you know, welcome and respect the stranger. Um, you know, there's no, there shouldn't be barriers. So say hello to your, to people you meet in the street, you know, open up to them more. That That's a beginning and that's one way of taking things that we practice at the event back into your real life. Uh, gifting. You know, there's one thing to give a gift, but there's another thing to give it as an unconditional gift. There's no expectation of, of a two-way exchange. Um, self-reliance, that, that's, um, you know, too many people rely on, oh, I can't do that, I'll pay someone to do it, or this needs fixing, fix it yourself, rather than, you know, paying people or, or not so much paying people, but, you know, look inside the skills you've got in yourself. Um, and collaboration and communal effort, I think whether you go to a small burn like ours, which is 4,000 people, when I say small, it's probably about the fifth biggest in the world now. Um, or if you go to Africa Burn or uh, Israel Midburn, they've got a large event that's about 13,000 people, or Kiwi Burn, which is the longest-running regional burn. You go to these events and you realise that collaboration makes all these things happen um, and communal effort. So start doing things, you know, including more people and, and working on projects with more people. It might be doing your veggie patch at home, get your neighbours involved and just reach out to people and include people. That's, that's a good start anyway. Uh, Justin, it's James here. I think, um, you know, one of the feelings you get from attending events like this is a uh, communal kind of um, feeling. You know, you, you've left something that you've experienced with other people. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of the principles are kind of individual um, sort of things that you can do. And I guess, you know, further to kind of expand upon what Layla was saying um, and to take that, I guess, into like activism and community kind of organising as well, because... Um, I think the, like, what you're saying, what you just said then is, is a really interesting kind of approach. And, um, you know, they're kind of things that can really change, transform the way that we think as individuals and the kind of interactions we might have on a day to day level. But I guess I'm, I'm interested in how you, uh, people can kind of take that feeling and perhaps take it into communities that, you know, can't afford to, um, go to these kind of events or, um, you know, are, uh, prohibited from, you know, because of the, the social structures in our society of, um, you know, class and racism and sexism, things like that. How do, we, how do we get into these kind of communities and use this kind of feeling to, you know, be radically changing the society that is existing at the moment and not just, you know, from like, you know, quite a kind of privileged circles that um, others might, in, you know, move in? Well, um, I'll give you two examples. One, one of the 
guiding principles is leave no trace. Um, and there's a camp that's at Burning Seed called Camp Kraken after the, the sea monster. And uh, they do a Merry, uh, Merry Creek clean-up day. And um, they go down there, um, uh, you know, by the guiding principle of leave no trace. And they go down there and they rally the neighbourhood that they've chosen on Merry Creek and they go along and clean up the, the creek. Um, there's also um, a group called Burners Without Borders. Now, they're, they're bigger in the States than anywhere else in the world, but the Melbourne group um, met was about six months ago, I think, and they all decided what, what project can we work on, and they decided they'd go out and do visits to the refugee centre out in uh, Footscray, I think it is. And so they were taking what, you know, the ethos and the culture and going out to the refugee centre and um, doing volunteer work and spending time with these people who'd come into Australia. So there are a couple of examples of ways of... And I understand what you're saying. It, it, it does feel that white middle-class privilege of being able to afford to go to these events and have a great time. Um, but things like that, that's a starting point. And, that, and from that, other things grow. Yeah, I think they're two uh, really good examples. I'm really interested in this phrase, post-scarcity anarchism, because my, my, my suspicion is if there is an apocalypse, which is something that we've spoken about quite a bit on 3CR Monday Breakfast, is that things will become more scarce, not less. Like if the systems that currently deliver um, most of the needs that we that we have are broken apart, um, we may actually be living in, a, in, a, in an environment where scarcity increases rather than decreases. Do you... Can you tell me the opposite? No, I, I agree with you. I'm sure if um, if things go bad, uh, we're going to live in a world with less things, and that's where communal effort and gifting will will play a big part to help. We we will need to rally together from a grassroots level to help each other, and that gifting of perhaps your tomatoes from your tomato patch you know, to other people or, or tools to help people fix their things because there isn't the workshops there to do it. Um, that collaboration and that communal effort, that's what's going to see us through those hard times. Justin, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us um, and, yeah, delving into this and kind of, yeah, um, bringing this perspective to Monday Breakfast. Really, really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, thanks for having me. Have a great day, everyone. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Um, thanks very much. I just want to leave on a quote, uh, if that's possible. So, we must now choose either to be subsumed into an energy force of the impending fascist police state or transform ourselves into energies that foster discovery of how persons can balance their human and spiritual needs with the natural rhythms of the universe. So, let's just keep exploring that. Yeah, and I think events like the one you attended can be a great place to explore those ideas. Now, up next is our regular segment, Over the Wall, looking at uh, Centrelink and the people that use it and the barriers that exist to stop them using it effectively. This is a public service announcement. We speak now on Over the Wall to Catherine Wilkes, 
from the Say No 7 campaign and Stop Welfare Cards Australia campaigns regarding the rollout of cashless card trials into another electorate, the Hinkler electorate. I started by asking Catherine if she'd seen any decent representation in the mainstream media about how the rollout of cashless welfare cards, also known as the Indu card, is impacting the local community. No. They'll only print the the drivel that's repeated over and over again of how well the card's working and how crime's down and how domestic violence is down, but that's not the truth. We're just sick of it. I mean, even this week, the Australian, Paul Fletcher couldn't even get his facts right. He just stuck to the script. They're just reading a script. If they'd read any of the submissions and they'd listened to the Auditor General's report, there's no way they would have gone forward with this. Evidence that they are not listening to anybody else, they don't care about the people, and they're just going to try and steamroll forward as much as they can. Well, it said the LNP in, in the Hinkler rollout bypassed the wishes of two mayors and 60% of the population... Absolutely. All the polls that were done up here in the papers, on average, most of the polls had 85, 86% against. The uh, Seven Wide Bay News, they did a couple of polls. The last poll they did was 62% against. That was because the LNP members were all told to jump online and vote yes. And then the News Mail decided to do this reach tell poll that only took in 600 people, thereabouts. And it included things like the Family First Party, which doesn't exist. And it stated that the Greens were 34% in favour of the card, which is totally 100% wrong. The Greens are 100% against the card. So that was a really dodgy little thing that Keith Pitt was clinging to in the Parliament, going, oh, but our reach to poll says it's 53% for. And it's like, he lost the support of the Bundaberg mayor, Our mayor in the Fraser Coast mayor is totally against it and he spoke at the Senate inquiry and he also put in his submission and made it very clear and we made it clear and the public made it clear but they just didn't listen because they weren't dealing with the public. The public weren't invited to consultations. The public were invited to two meetings, one in Harvey Bay and one in Bundaberg, to be told how it was going to be. That was it. And Tristan Reid's exact words, he was the senior policy advisor for Alan Touch at the time, to our meeting was, we can't control the rest of the population, but we can control those people that are on welfare. He stood up and said that in front of 50 people, Harvey Bay Community Centre. And that didn't make people happy. They didn't want to answer any questions about Indu. They didn't want to acknowledge the Indu terms and conditions. They kept trying to sidestep it and say that's nothing to do with the DSS. And it just got ridiculous. And then the meetings that they've had, their 188 consultations, Most of them have been done through impact job agency with the service providers behind closed doors. Very, very complex and sneaky policy rolled out by this government and it's been rolled out in remote rural areas in the big cities on the mainstream current affairs shows. We're not hearing these sort of details that we're hearing from you today, Catherine. No, and I don't know how many interviews that I've done that I've said the same things over and over and over and it gets edited out, chopped out. I've done lots of TV interviews, yet they won't have the truth be told. The government's telling people it's coming in in November, and then on the other hand, it's the legislation that has to wait three months after it should be coming in January. We don't know. 
It must be awful knowing it's coming when you know how it's already affected the other three electorates. Basically, a lot of people are trying to prepare themselves because they know that once it comes in, it's going to stuff their lives right up. I mean, Kalgoorlie's been on it now six months and it's not making their lives any easier. They had their big police presence with Operation Fortitude. As soon as that finished, Kalgoorlie's crime and domestic violence and shoplifting and everything's gone through the roof again. Uh, Kalanara is just out of control and they're bringing in more police into Kalanara. I saw an article this week to try and stem it. Yeah, it's, it's getting crazy because people need services, not income control. Do you know what I mean? In Kalanara, they're still waiting for their mental health services. They were promised. They never got it. In Kalgoorlie, what's happened to the money, the $1 million wraparound services for the drug and alcohol centre? when their only rehab centre that's down there is crowdfunding to raise money because they run out of money. Where's the money from the rollout for the car? Do you know what I mean? If this was about helping people, the money would be invested in the people and the services that are needed, not into a private non-banking company that's just a funds transfer company. Anything else you'd like to say today, Catherine? It's been a very, very exhausting, very tiring road. We've been fighting in Hinkler for 18 months. Other regions were able to stop it in a lot quicker time. Unfortunately, we weren't. We did stop it once. We stopped it in February, and then the government, Keith Pitt, just wouldn't let it go, and he just had to try again. We were very, very disappointed with Tim Storer, who's supposed to be an independent. On the day, he voted to side with the government. Yet, at the same time, he's standing up for a raise in Newstar and do more for sole parents and do more for old age pensioners. But what's the point when you back up the cashless debit card? Tim Storer, the senator from South Australia, put up on his Facebook page a post about having supported the government with the cashless welfare card and he got so many negative comments from citizens that post went down within a day. Well, if you scroll down his page... There's a picture of me standing in front of him. He was talking at the Australian Age Pensioners Group rally outside Parliament House, and I was there. And our banner is standing right behind him. He spoke to me for about five minutes. And his senior policy advisor invited me to come up and have a proper meeting with him, all right, which I went up to organise, and they totally stuffed me around for the rest of the afternoon, made me wait. And then they came down and said, I'll come back at 4 o'clock. So I went back at 4 o'clock and then they turned around and said, put it in an email. You know, and I travelled from Queensland to Parliament House to be able to talk to him. And at the end of the day, I didn't get the meeting I needed to have. I got told, put it in an email. A fob off. And then he voted in support of the case And then as well. he, voted, he voted with the government, knowing very well that we didn't want it. He knew full well that we didn't want it. And that was the crucial vote? Well, it was. But the fight's not over by a long shot. This is a battle. This country cannot afford to go down this way. They can't afford it. No government can afford to roll this card out the way that they want to roll it out. The cost is just unbelievable. The human cost is even more. They've not put back the services they stripped between 2014 and 2018. Our services up here are absolutely terrified of the fallout they don't have the staff or the services to provide help to be able to cope with it. We don't have any homeless shelters in this whole region and yet we've got thousands of people that are homeless. We've got people sleeping in mangrove swamps at Harvey Bay. 
why can't they build a homeless shelter? They'd rather put in place something that will make people homeless because there's going to be a percentage of people that just cannot fit into their pigeonhole. People who become homeless when they lose control of, over their little bit of cash they get from Social Security. Yep. Well, you get the situation where people just give up and say, well, stuff it, why should I try anymore? All I'm getting is abuse, threatened with demerit points, threatened with cut off. They haven't even worked out what's going to happen if somebody is cut off from their payments due to the punitive social security system we now have and how that's going to affect the Indu card. Well, anybody with any debt can apply for housing. What's in your bank is what you're worth, your 20%. That's your income. That's it. So you're going to have an awful lot of people applying to housing, public housing, to try and get bonds organised. People need to stand up for themselves as well. They've got to really start standing up for themselves and they've got to stop being afraid to speak out. It's unjust what's happening. It's wrong. Laws are being ignored. Protections are being put aside. Why? Why should you be any less a citizen just because your mum claimed family payments when you were growing up and you ended up on youth allowance trying to get a job or study when you were a teenager? Or you've lost a job because your factory closed down or the boss shut the shop down, you know what I mean? Or you're a parent and you've had a tragedy or a domestic violence situation and you're trying to raise children on your own and you're being penalised and kicked in the guts by everybody around you. Instead of being supported by your community, you're being abandoned by your community. And demonised. What sort of next generation is going to grow out of that? Can you give listeners the details, names of the campaigns you recommend? Well, at the moment, there's an event coming up in Brisbane at the end of the month through Anti-Poverty Network Queensland. They're doing a, um, a two-day conference which incorporates cashless debit card and all so social security issues. There's another one in South Australia too. They've got their conference as well, Anti-Poverty Network South Australia. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR and it's currently 8.01am and as Jackson said earlier, it's going to get to a high of 27 degrees today. So everyone is enjoying their Monday morning. And um, right now we've got Clinton Fernandez, who's the author of a new book called Island Off the Coast of Asia. And Clinton is a former Australian Army officer, served in the Australian Intelligence Corps, and today uh, he's a professor of international political studies at the University of New South Wales. And his book is a really, um, you know, deep dive into the instruments of statecraft in Australian foreign policy. It goes right back to colonial history and, you know, up until today and what Australia is doing with, um, you know, foreign policy and the, um, you know, militarism in Australia. Thanks a lot uh, for joining us, Clinton. Oh, thank you for having me. So I guess to, to start with, um, you know, how does a former Australian Army officer come to be writing this book, which is, um, you know, a really um, big kind of in-depth account of Australian foreign policy? Uh, I guess everybody's had a variety of jobs in their past. And uh, uh, I've just uh, been in the military uh, for about 15 years. Uh, but that was about you know, 13 years ago. And I've been an academic um, since 2006. Um, the background simply gave me a, a better insight into how uh, policy works on the inside. But the evidence for all this is simply uh, declassified material from the National Archives, as well as uh, you know, what's publicly available by, by examining um, corporate uh, reports and corporate influences on foreign policy. 
And so in the book, you talk about the ANZUS agreement and mm-hmm. it, the kind of the role it's played in conflict. What do you see as the current kind of diplomatic or military benefits of the ANZUS agreement? Uh, well, I mean, the military benefits uh, are less than uh, what people often assume. Mm. Uh, ANZUS doesn't actually uh, compel um, uh, the United States uh, to come to Australia's defense in the event of, uh, of an invasion, which uh, in any case is very unlikely. Um, rather, it just it compels, it just requires both sides to just consult with each other uh, in, you know, in accordance and to act in accordance with each other's constitutional processes. Uh, so it's not a guarantee of our military security or military defense at all. Um, what it does do, though, is uh, uh, provide some kind of psychological reassurance uh, that maybe uh, we matter uh, to a superpower like the United States. I, I was um, reading uh, a few weeks ago the paper, the ANZUS After 50 Years paper, and that um, you know looked at, I guess, the benefits and um, you know negative impacts of of the um, of the alliance. And it's something that is kind of never really touched on in uh, mainstream media. Really, it's like as you said, it's really given shorthand for the Americans will come and save us or whatever. Yes. Um, but I think it seemed, you know, I think the Australian government itself has a much more kind of nuanced approach to that. And really, in a lot of ways, do you think that it is a kind of um, a marketing exercise in a way? Uh, it provides reassurance uh, uh, to policymakers that, uh, you know, we can consult with the United States uh, in accordance with uh, various uh, meetings that we have as part of uh, ANZUS. Um, and that psychological reassurance is something that policymakers seem to uh, really treasure. Uh, but in terms of uh, actual influence, uh, that, that ANZUS doesn't give you that. Uh, nothing really does. Um, see, in the past, <coughs> the, the, the reason for the ANZUS is, is part of a very deep geopolitical tradition. Uh, we were part of um, the greatest empire in the world, uh, the British Empire, and that's how Australia was founded. And we've been on the winning side of uh, a global confrontation. Uh, between uh, Europe and the rest of the world, between, say, the imperial powers and the colonized people. And what I call the organizing principle of our entire foreign policy is to stay on that winning side. Um, And so we will participate in uh, um, all kinds of uh, uh, expeditionary wars or things like that uh, in order to remain relevant to British thinking. And the great anxiety during the British period was that uh, London wouldn't care too much about what happened down here. Um, and so that used to be called colonial nationalism you know, or empire nationalism. It was loyalty to the empire while trying to advocate uh, for uh, Australia's interests uh, or visibility. And today it could be called alliance nationalism, so loyalty to uh, the U.S. alliance while trying to get a seat at the table. And in that case, uh, I think uh, in that sense, uh, it's been entirely unsuccessful. You know, the, the United States simply doesn't care that much about what Australia says or does, except when they want us to come along and give them diplomatic support uh, elsewhere in the United Nations system. Well, I, I guess, you know, in 2008, we saw President Obama make his um, so-called pivot to Asia speech. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from there, you know, I guess it looked perhaps for, you know, some interested people that Australia was going to, play more of a role in that kind of sense and the ongoing battle I guess now between America and Chinese kind of influence how do you see I mean um, you know Hugh White has kind of talked of this kind of dual um, you know power sharing kind of arrangement that could happen there or um, you know certainly don't want to create a um, Chinese scare kind of thing here but you know it it is a rise of of another military power and I guess you know what Australia's um, 
role will look like in that, I think, is a really interesting kind of... Oh, for topic. sure. I mean, look, the, the, the fact is that uh, uh, China's rise is something that uh, causes a, a major dilemma for people who are, who are trying to formulate foreign policy. Uh, for this reason, you know, from the, uh, let's say, approximately the 18th of Jan, 1788, when the first fleet arrived, until, say, the 15th of September 2008, the, the fall of uh, Lehman Brothers, global financial crisis, uh, there was no conflict, in fact, uh, at, at all between uh, our military partner and our economic partner. It was one and the same, you know, and even when it wasn't one and the same like Japan, it was still an ally after the Second World War. Uh, but now, the last decade, uh, China is our greatest trading partner, but the United States, uh, uh, the, the entire architecture of Australia's defense arrangements is with the United States. Um, and what has not uh, been contemplated, this is one of the, the key things in that particular chapter of the book you're referring to, um, is the social fracture that could occur in the event of a, of a war with China uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, China is not going to take a step back. Uh, they have already achieved uh, military uh, dominance in that part of the air, in that part of the region. Uh, anything short of a full of a full scale war with the United States, China would win. Anything short of that, um, and so Australian ships, if they confront China through uh, you know miscalculation in some way, um, they could uh, could have a serious setback. Now, the people who make policy. Uh, look a lot like the people you find on commercial TV, uh, namely they're largely non-multiracial, uh, but our society has become multiracial. If you look at uh, the number of people of Chinese background, for example, who happen to be in hospitals, schools, uh, universities, workplaces more generally, uh, there's quite a lot. Um, and uh, th there's going to be calls from the extreme fringes for people like that to be put in internment camps if there's a steady stream of body bags that comes back uh, in the event of a, of a war uh, in the South China Sea with China. Uh, I don't think that level of social fracture has been contemplated by people who make policy. You see, they, they, uh, they reflect certain uh, intrinsic uh, uh, values, which is that the entire architecture is to do whatever the United States would like us to do, within reason, of course, but to, but to, but to go along with the United States. And uh, meanwhile, uh, any kind of uh, conflict with China would shut down maritime trade in the Western Pacific, okay, and that would see a serious fall in Australia's gross domestic product. Uh, it would see a flow-on effect to the economies of South Korea and Japan, uh, where we have huge uh, you know, trading interests. Uh, and so while the defense architecture uh, remains very pro-U.S., uh, something that's been stitched up since 1951, um, the economic architecture, and indeed our demographic uh, nature now, uh, has changed. And I don't think uh, people in, in, who make policy have appreciated that fact. Well, we heard about the Witness K scandal uh, in which foreign office um, was bugged. Well, how prevalent do you think this kind of espionage is, and do you think it undermines Australia's diplomatic negotiations with other nations? Uh, well, I think what the Witness K scandal does is it's shown that um, you know we've chosen uh, the former Foreign Minister Alexander Downer is alleged to have ordered uh, uh, an espionage operation uh, to, to bug uh, the, the negotiating rooms uh, of the East Timorese government mm -hmm. uh, during uh, oil and gas treaty negotiations in 2004. Um, and that can't be considered a friendly act, okay, by anyone. Um, I think a number of Pacific Island countries watching this, the people in the countries in the Southwest Pacific, uh, are going to have grave doubts about uh, our good intentions at precisely the time that we seem to want to reassure them um, that, you know, they should be leaning towards us and not towards China. Well, 
In, the, in there's a chapter where you talk about um, the Vietnam War, and I yes. guess um, you know I think, like you argue in in the in the book, it really has um, had a huge impact on I think not just Australian militarism, but you know I guess the, the kind of boots on the ground type militarism. We've seen a big shift into um, you know drone warfare and things like that since then, and I guess since yes. Iraq and Afghanistan. But yes. In there, you talk that. Um, the Vietnam years also saw the public abandon the view that only the government should decide matters of war and peace. Yes, yes. look, it's not entirely, uh, not very well understood today. People today think of Vietnam and they think of, uh, you know, peace protests and how people were all the against the Vietnam War, but that's not true. I mean, one of the things that I do trace in the book is that public opinion was pro-war. Mm. Okay? Uh, it was pro-war uh, uh, and, in fact, is even pro-conscription. Um, the 1966 November elections, uh, the Labour Party at the time, uh, the leader was Arthur Caldwell, and he was uh, totally opposed uh, to sending uh, Australian troops, and in, in, in particular conscripts, to Vietnam. And he said, effectively, that uh, the 66 elections are going to be a referendum on, on the Vietnam War. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and in fact, he was soundly defeated. Uh, he, you know, the Labour Party lost that election uh, by more uh, than they'd ever lost to Menzies. Uh, you know, Harold Holt won uh, by a landslide. Um, and so uh, what, hasn't, what is not appreciated is how pro-war the population was. But I think what happened was that the, uh, the peace movement had a civilizing effect um, on, on our culture. And within the peace movement, uh, you had activists who were women who didn't want to take subordinate roles to, to men uh, activists. And so they themselves began to push back against sexism within the peace movement. And uh, through that and a number of other processes, uh, uh, you know, the, the feminist movement came out, followed by the environmental movement. Uh, and all of those things, I think, had a civilizing effect on, um, on Australian culture and, and society. And to the point where after Vietnam, uh, the public was no longer willing to tolerate expeditionary wars. You know, when, for example, um, Howard has to send troops into, into Iraq, um, he's got to scare the public to do it. He's got to lie and say, or at least mislead and say, look, uh, you know, the Saddam Hussein, weapons of mass destruction, links with Osama bin Laden, because the population isn't going along with it. The population has been civilized. They're not willing to tolerate, you know, uh, aggressive wars anymore. And so the fact that uh, the population has to be deeply misled and scared by all these kinds of, uh, you know, scary figures to, to get them to go along with the war, and it still fails. Uh, that is actually a, a, a positive sign of the peace movement, that in fact they've managed to, uh, to, to have a civilizing effect on, on, on our society. Clinton, it's Jackson here. Um, yes. you, you've written uh, in the past about uh, parliamentary approval processes of military yes. deployments. What do you think is the right way for a government to get the consent of its people to engage in a military conflict? Yeah, um, I, I wrote, a, wrote about this because there are, there, there are groups like the Australians for War Powers Reform. I'm not a member, but I, I'm aware of their work. Uh, and they call for parliamentary approval before sending out, uh, sending troops into, into conflict. Um, and, I, and I wanted to kind of add to the debate by showing if you needed to do that, here's what you'd have to do to make it happen. Uh, I think that there, are, there are three objections that have always been put up uh, to people who say that Parliament should have to, uh, to approve a military deployment. The first one is um, 
intelligence. What about, uh, you know, if you discuss the, the intelligence threat, the dispositions of the enemy in Parliament, then the entire public's going to hear about it, but so is the enemy. And therefore, you don't want to, to, to reveal classified intelligence in Parliament. So that's one objection. The other objection is, uh, you know, flexibility. So supposing you've got ships heading off to, uh, uh, to the Middle East or somewhere else, uh, and then they're suddenly called to fight Somali pirates. Uh, how are you going to call Parliament back in order to, to make them debate that? There isn't enough time. And the third is self-defense. Supposing a, a foreign power were to seize a part of Australia or even an offshore island, like, say, Christmas Island or Cocos Island, uh, if you call Parliament back, uh, you're giving too much time to the other side to consolidate its gains and set up defenses. And so that increases, uh, you know, the casualties on your side. And so what I've said is that um, if you wanted to make it happen, you'd have to have uh, a few reforms first. You'd have to um, – these are very simple to do, but they need to happen. You would need to empower – uh, the uh, certain committees of parliament uh, to hear classified intelligence uh, to see the same intelligence uh, as the executive branch that's the cabinet is seeing and that is what happens in the united states for example you know the senate intelligence committee in the u.s and the arms and the, and the house intelligence committee uh, they see the same intelligence as the united states president um, and for certain operations like drone operations that are conducted, you know, those senators and their staffers are driven across the Potomac River to the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and they are shown footage of drone strikes. Nothing like this happens in the Australian Parliament. We've got the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, uh, which cannot examine any operation, any intelligence operation, past, present, or proposed. Okay, it is the most absurdly self-limiting uh, parliamentary committee you can think of. Um, and so if you wanted to have parliamentary authorization of military deployments, you would need to empower that committee uh, to, to see the intelligence. Uh, otherwise, it just wouldn't, couldn't be done. Secondly, if it is an actual um, self-defense type deployment, if we've been attacked or, say, an offshore territory has been seized, uh, then you wouldn't want to have any parliamentary approval. You'd simply uh, uh, you know, allow the military to be used in self-defense uh, by the executive acting as it should. Uh, and that is what happens. In countries that do have parliamentary approval, like Germany and the Netherlands and, and Norway, uh, there is no requirement for parliamentary approval uh, in matters of self-defense. Mm -hmm. But in coalition operations, these are all members of NATO, uh, and they do have like, you know, military operations as part of NATO, they don't allow their military to go anywhere unless the parliament has approved. And the United States uh, grumbles and sulks and gets annoyed uh, when the, the Netherlands says, no, we're taking our time making a decision. The parliament has to approve it. Uh, well, they say we're still going to have to do it, whereas in Australia there is no such requirement. So if you wanted to have those, uh, if you wanted to have those kinds of uh, processes with Parliament approving uh, military deployment, uh, you'd need to have these reforms first. Yeah, I would definitely want those types of requirements. I understand the difference between a self-defence act and an act uh, in foreign soil or what you're calling a, a coalition-type act. Yeah. But, it, you know, we have seen in recent history that the US is very willing to act unilaterally uh, regardless yes. of support from its allies. Yes. There was an interesting article just a few days ago by Catherine McGregor in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, it was uh, titled, We Are Sleepwalking Into an Era of Unprecedented unprecedented danger mm -hmm. and I was interested on your thoughts I mean obviously you know part of your job is to catastrophize and think about worst case scenarios mm -hmm. but we do seem to be witnessing the, the death of the so-called Pax Americana Pax yes. for some and, and not not for others mm -hmm. certainly uh, what 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 do you see in the next few years as as China continues to 
produce films that demonstrate its ability to enter other countries. They're starting to make this type of material and become much more uh, active. This, uh, this, this writer, Catherine McGregor, also talks about the growth of Indonesia. I know that, uh, you know, who's our closest neighbour and some of our, uh, I guess, uh, quite arrogant interactions with that country and the way that we call them out for human rights abuses without looking into our own backyard or even our own history and our interactions with them. What are your thoughts about the near future and, and global okay. peace? Uh, look, I haven't read the article by, by Catherine McGregor, but I, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, as uh, I just take up your, your, your second point first, about uh, not looking into uh, what we do, about pointing out what, the, what other people do, I think that's uh, uh, universal as far as uh, governments are concerned and as far as uh, intellectuals who kind of uh, uh, go along with government policy are concerned. Okay, the idea is to do the opposite uh, of uh, the advice given in the Gospels. You know about uh, put, pulling out the uh, the plank from your eye and uh, and focusing on uh, on on the on the bite and mote in somebody else's eye. Uh, no, what what you do is you you, fig, you 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 use human rights as a weapon. Uh, human rights has been weaponized in the United Nations uh, system such that uh, what we do in the Human Rights Council is point out uh, the flaws of Syria, but not Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. uh, North, North Korea, but not even what Indonesia did in East Timor with our help. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole object of, of uh, diplomacy when it comes to, to what states do and as to what think tanks that, that are allied with the states do is to focus on, uh, on, every, on your enemy's problems um, and not your own and to protect your allies. Um, so that's the first, that that's standard. Um, yeah, okay. But in terms of the Pax Americana fading, uh, I could just offer this observation: um, any power uh, that aspires to great power status, uh, you know, universalism, has to have not just military force, but some kind of a, uh, a soft power, universalizing ideology uh, that that appeals to uh, to uh, the rest. Uh, take, for example, Spain. You know, Spain was a brutal, you know, genocidal power in the Americas. Uh, but it had this universalizing ideology of Catholicism. Okay, same as Portugal. Um, you have, um, uh, you know, even before that, you've got Islam, uh, which was an aggressive kind of expansionist religion at the time. It was expanding. Uh, but it had certain uh, positive aspects to it. For example, it was against the caste system in India. Okay, it, it was against, uh, um, you know, usury, uh, the exorbitant charging of interest by, by, by moneylenders. Um, and so it had this positive uh, appeal as well. Uh, same with, um, say, the British Empire. You know, it had uh, uh, the idea of uh, liberalism and, and the Enlightenment. Um, it virtually invented modern athletics, you know, with uh, cricket and, and soccer, and hockey and other kinds of sports. Not to mention the railroads and the telegraph. Well, yes, yeah, so, yeah, sure. I mean, but, you know, it had this ideology that was offering certain things, certain values. Uh, France had its own kind of idea of the rights of man, you know, which was uh, manipulated for, uh, to expand its, its interests into, uh, into, into Africa. Uh, the United States has uh, soft power of democracy in Hollywood and, you know, things like that culture. Okay, in that sense, China is not that kind of power. Okay, it doesn't have 26 letters of the alphabet. It's got 7,000 characters. Okay, um, it, it is not easily able uh, to transfer uh, what, what is unique about Chinese uh, culture and civilization uh, to the rest of the world. It doesn't have that kind of uh, Pax Sinica, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the soft power aspects of it. Um, China, to, the, to a large extent, though, is uh, a, uh, a, a third world country. It's, uh, you know, gross domestic product uh, 
you know, per person, you know, is, is much, much lower than the United States. It's largely an assembly area in which uh, finance uh, from Taiwan and Japan, uh, you know, gets uh, products to assemble at low cost in China, and it's trying to move up the scale on that. Uh, its interactions with ASEAN are very different to Europe's interactions with ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Okay, China's interactions with ASEAN are, are quite... Uh, uh, horizontal. There's a lot of technology transfer. There's a lot of uh, interaction as, as almost as equals because they're both kind of you know third world former colonial powers. Europe's interactions with say uh, ASEAN are quite uh, you know colonial in that sense. There's kind of capital that's there, um, and there's low wages being used, um, and those those agreements are quite different. I think China, uh, its true um, its true threat, as it were, is that it doesn't get scared. You know, it, it, uh, other countries, if the United States sort of waves a finger at them or points a stick, uh, it goes and uh, the other, other countries kind of do what it wants, but China just defies it. I mean, that, that's, the real, that's the real fear of it. But I, I don't think it's got, um, it's, it, it aspires to universalism in the way that, say, Britain or France or, or the American empires or their hegemonic status do. I mean, it's, it doesn't have that soft power narrative, that universalizing ideology. You know, it's not trying to promote uh, Confucianism, nor, nor, nor could it in this country. Though, you know, the Belt and Road program would suggest otherwise. You know, they, you know I'm not sure yes. whether it's a totalizing ideology or a universally, uh, universalizing ideology in the way you're describing, and I'm, I'm no. thankful that they don't have those aspirations of uh, no. global domination, but they are interested in bringing their particular brand of, uh, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics or... Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to the rest of the developing world. And that, yeah. and that is going to, I feel like that's going to change the geopolitical reality yeah. that, that, that you have just so aptly described. It will. Look, you're right. But once again, it is, it is, a, it is kind of, uh, uh, it sees itself uh, as uh, a leader of the third world. I mean, the, there was a, there's a group in the United Nations system called the G77, which came out of the 1960s, where 77 third world countries uh, joined together. Uh, in, in those days, I should add, third world had a positive aspect to it. Uh, it was like the third estate of the French Revolution. I mean, that's literally where the word, the phrase third world comes out of. Uh, it's neither the, the, the monarchs nor the aristocrats, uh, you know, the nobility. And so from the French Revolution, so third world had a kind of a positive uh, side to it. So the third world... Uh, uh, there were 77 countries in the third world, and uh, they wanted a better deal. They wanted a better deal, mm. uh, you know, to recover from the effects of colonialism. Mm. Uh, and that that grouping has now increased to more than a hundred, uh, but they still call themselves the G77. Well, okay, in the UN, China leads or sees itself as leading the G77. It definitely wants to to bring together the, the former colonial powers. Um, uh, to unite their economies together. And it does so, of course, in a dominating fashion, you know, with uh, quite uh, aggressive behavior at times. But, you know, in, in things like climate change, for example, it does take the lead in the United Nations system, and it speaks on behalf of the third world, uh, on behalf of the G77. Mm. Um, and and the, the One Belt, One Road system uh, is part of that. I mean, it sees, it seeks, sees itself as, as pushing westward um, into uh, the Eurasian uh, landmass uh, and then trying Trying to use, that's the, the land aspect of the, of the One Belt, One Road system. And then there's a the maritime aspect which sees it's going, um, you know, a string of uh, trading posts backed by military power, naval bases, um, uh, into the African continent and then into the, through the Red Sea uh, and the Mediterranean uh, down the track. Uh, so it, but it is not a, a, a universalizing kind of ideology as such. It's more a, an economic project. 
uh, which which is um, uh, um, a project of the third world. I mean, that's its primary its primary focus. And to the extent that we see ourselves as part of the European conquest of the third world, then yeah, we are at a disadvantage. Sure. But in terms of Australia, I just want to say yes. Look, the the, the laws against foreign interference that have come in. Uh, those are important laws. There is a large uh, diaspora. There is clear evidence that uh, uh, you know, China would like to, uh, to, to meddle in elections. Um, and um, I think those laws um, are probably necessary. But I think there is a need for greater oversight of those laws. For the first time, you know, we've got, since the 1960s, subversion. Um, is now a focus of ASIO. Look, in the past, uh, ASIO would focus on subversives, as, uh, people who were in the peace movement, you know, anti-Vietnam and so on, as if they were acting on behalf uh, of the communists uh, in the Soviet Union. Okay, so subversion became uh, something that, that ASIO would focus on. Now, given that many people in the peace movement in Vietnam weren't at all connected to the Soviet Union, they were just basically opposed to violence in Vietnam, you know, Australian presence in Vietnam and the United States presence in Vietnam, um, it became clear that ASIO was uh, focusing on Australian society rather than on subversives. So subvers- subversion went out because it was, it was, it was no longer a, a focus for ASIO. It became interested more in politically ma- motivated violence, uh, terrorism, um, and of course direct espionage, but not subversion. But now with these new laws, which I think are important and necessary, uh, you, you should have uh, laws to, to detect foreign interference in, in Australian society and our democracy. But now subversion has come back. Okay? And so the lack of oversight, parliamentary oversight, uh, is now a, a problem. We actually have no legitimate, genuine parliamentary oversight. Any oversight of ASIO occurs to the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, which is within the executive branch of government. We don't have legislative oversight, uh, and we don't have judicial oversight, and so that really now needs to happen. It certainly is a problem when you have um, internal departments monitoring other departments. Um, But unfortunately, Clinton, we've run out of time uh, this morning. We've been speaking to Clinton Fernandez, who is the author of a new book, Island Off the Coast of Asia, and I really appreciate... um, your discussion this morning. It's been really, really great and I'm sure listeners have really enjoyed it as well. So if they'd like to um, hear more about what you've got to say and there's a a number of other things we didn't touch on, um, things around the kind of lack of political debate and discussion within parliamentary circles and the global financial crisis and its impact on foreign policy, uh, a number of other things that um, you talk about in the book. So people should definitely um, check that out. Um, thanks a lot for joining us this morning. Thank, I appreciate your questions. Uh, you obviously prepared very well. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Uh, you've very been listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Uh, up next is Women on the Line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.